0: Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways. But on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the Word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's Word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's Word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. I covet your prayers. All right, this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Psalms. Uh, Who was here last week? Got to hear Ernie. Come on. That dude was fire. What does it look like to be a distinct disciple in today's world? All right? And the first three verses of Psalms, he was able to lay that out. What does it look like for us to be distinct and to be different from the rest of the world? And so I've loved it. But I've loved the Psalms so far. And I actually love the book of Psalms in general because I think the Psalms show us some very cool and very special things about who we are, but more importantly about who God is, right? It shows us that we are more than just intellectual thinking beings, Right, That we were created with much more intentionality and purpose and creativeness. That we have desires and, and we have these hearts that, mush, that push us forward in emotions and wills. And, and then it shows us how does God reconcile all those things together. Our hearts, our desires, our emotions. And how do we relate to God and worship God even in the midst of all that. I love the Psalms. They actually show us how to do two things. They show us how to be completely transparent Raw, vulnerable, authentic. But then they also show us how to pursue God and pursue his holiness as well. And so it's a beautiful blending of the two that we get because oftentimes, if we're being honest with ourselves, we tend to live on one side or the other, right? We tend to be either completely raw, transparent, authentic, and vulnerable, or we tend to pursue God's holiness over here and we just don't know how to meet the two up in the middle. And if we're living really raw and transparent, and yet we aren't pursuing change or transformation in our lives, then what happens over time as you are being transparent, what happens over time is God actually begins to look more and more like you because you're not changing. But then if you're just one of those people that pursues holiness, right, and you've, you do, you've, you're really disciplined, you go to all the Bible studies, you've got the Bible verses posted on all the walls in your, in your home, and you're posting pictures, on, and you've got your coffee cup and your Bible, and it's all highlighted, and it's on Instagram, and it's like, man, look at me, check it out, I'm pursuing holiness, I'm disciplined, but then you're never actually transparent or raw and authentic, What tends to happen when you do fail, you actually begin to hide, And so, because you don't want people to see, oh man, there's actually a brokenness to me. And so what the Psalms beautifully do is they show us how to mold these two things together. How do we live this out together? Raw and transparent, but yet pursuing God's holiness in our lives as well. So, this morning, we're also gonna look at specifically Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. But what I love about this Psalm is it shows us how to actually deal with and work through the emotions and frustrations and uh, uh, feelings when we're in the midst of doubt. So how do we actually deal with our doubt? It's gonna show us that God, he doesn't want us to praise our doubt, but he also doesn't want us to condemn our doubts. It's gonna show us that, hey, as a church, as a family, as a follower and apprentice of Jesus, it's okay to not be okay, but God loves you too much to allow you just to stay there. He's gonna move you into more and more faith, Right? So, just like Jesus, God welcomes the doubter. He actually welcomes the skeptic. He wants you to bring those doubts to him. He wants you to bring those, your skepticism to him. Remember Jesus, who did he invite to touch his hands? Doubting Thomas. He said, touch these hands where these holes are and see and believe this. And so God actually welcomes the doubter. He welcomes your questions. He wants you to walk in more and more faith. And so if that's you this morning, if you are doubting, if you are questioning something going on in your life, and it could be a myriad of things, believe me. There's doubts that pop in my head all the time. <laughs> it could be a myriad of things. If you're doubting, know this. God welcomes you this morning. Yes, amen. We welcome you this morning. Yes, we are glad you're here because we welcome you with the loving arms of Jesus. Yes, so welcome to restoration. Amen. So, Psalm 73. If you didn't know... Uh, King David didn't actually write all the Psalms, all right? So what we're going to see here today is Asaph is the psalmist that we're going to read from today. And Asaph, it's interesting, uh, was actually chosen by David to be one of the lead worshipers, one of three lead worshipers in the tabernacle. And so this man, he's an incredible man. He's got an incredible heart for God. And his writing, excuse me, is very distinct. It's very spiritual, but it's very uh, creative. It's very intentional about what he's trying to say. And we'll see that in a moment. But what he's showing us today, what Asaph is going to show us, is that he's just a man. He's a man filled with doubts. He's a man filled with complaints. He's a man that is lamenting and wondering, okay, what is going on? And so, he's going to show us that even in fact, he almost abandons his faith in the midst of doubt. Can you believe that? He almost abandons his faith in the midst of doubt. Anyone else ever have that issue before? Okay, just me. So, real quick. If you're a note taker, I see you guys in the front, come on, I love it. If you're a note taker, here's what we're going to learn about today. Three things. We're going to see what we doubt, we're going to see why we doubt, and then actually how do we overcome that doubt. So what we doubt, why we doubt, and how do we overcome it. So we'll start with what we doubt. Let's look at Psalm 73, 1 through 3. This is Asaph, this is God's word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the first thing we're going to see here is Asaph is pissed, right? He's doubting. That's what we're going to see. To be clear here, Asaph is not actually doubting God's existence, okay? He's not doubting whether or not God is real. He's not doubting his sovereignty. He's not questioning God's power, his beauty, or his glory. Rather, what he's questioning is whether or not God is good, Asaph is wondering, actually, is God good for me? God, are you near me? God, do you care about me? He's not questioning God's goodness in general. Look what it says. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, so right there, we see Asaph's kind of theological statement that he just puts right out there in front. He's saying, look, God is real. He is good in a more generic and general sense. But then he says in verse two that he almost stumbled. He almost fell. He almost walked away. He's showing us what his doubt is. Do you see it? Is God good for me? That's what he's doubting. Okay, he's not doubting whether or not he's real or he's good for others, but he's good for me. He's saying God is real. God is good to others. But as for me, I just don't see it. I don't get it. And because I don't get it, I've almost walked away from God. And so verse one says, my mind, my mind says God is good, but verse two says, my heart doesn't believe that. And that's quite a distance sometimes, right? For us to get from here to here, that's a, that's a mile long distance. And he's saying, my mind says God is good, but my heart says, I just can't trust that. And so the question has to be asked, how does this priest, how does this man that was appointed by King David to lead worship, how does this man go from one of great faith to one of incredible doubt and almost walking away from that faith. How does that happen? Well, you see it in verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It was the prosperity and flourishing of the wicked. And so what Asaph is telling us is that in his mind, he sees flourishing and prosperity of those that are far from God, that don't know God, that don't care about God. They live far from God and his desires and his will in their life. But yet they're the ones receiving the blessing. Instead of those that are faithful. Asaph is saying that what he sees and what he is feeling contradicts what God has said. And isn't that the essence of why we doubt sometimes? Isn't that the essence of our doubt? Because our experiences differ what God's word has to say. What we are seeing and feeling and experience is different from what we know to be true about God and his people. Yes. And that's the essence of why we doubt. God is good, God can be trusted, and yet in my life, my circumstances, I just don't see it. And so here I am, I'm reading the Bible. I'm just Josh I'm reading the Bible. and it says that God is good and is faithful to me, and yet I 'm struggling in my life. There's situations that I don't have control over, and I 'm struggling, and I'm saying, God, are you like, God, are you actually good? Are you faithful to me? Because I don't feel you right now? Or I read that God provides. And And I see poverty and despair throughout the world. Or I read that God protects me and I see sickness and disease in my wife. I read that God is faithful to his promises and yet I don't see them being answered. That's the essence of why we doubt. What we experience and what God's word has to say often contradicts. Now, Asaph specifically is challenged the most by this in this passage the prosperity and flourishing of the wicked. And listen to how he describes them. This is this is uh, very descriptive. For their pain for they have no pangs. Verse four, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are flat and sleek. I don't even know what that means. Fat and sleek. It does it seems contradictory, but he's pissed. Like, he's pissed right now. He's like, I'm not going to go into that. But they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. What we see Asaph lamenting about is the fact that those who don't believe, those that speak out against God, they're winning at every turn. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no turmoil. All they do is prosper. All they do is win, win, win. Right? And oftentimes, this is what challenges us the most in our faith today, is the prosperity of the people in our lives or in this world that don't know Jesus, that don't want to know Jesus, that don't proclaim his name, and even speak ill against him. And we got these culture wars that are happening all the time. And we see these people that are living against God's will and his desires, and we're wondering, why are they prospering? And yet the faithful over here, the ones suffering and losing, why is that, God? Do you care? And so we look at God and we say, God, I see people that are faithful to you. They follow you. They proclaim your name. And they're the ones experiencing loss. And just like the psalmist, we say, God, I don't get it. I don't get it. Because in that moment of doubt, we come to the conclusion that God must not be good and he must not care. And like Asaph, we begin to think that God is actually okay with the injustice of good things happening to bad people. Like we think God is okay with that. We begin to think that God is okay with the injustice of good things happening to bad people. So 18 years ago, that's all right, buddy. You can amen me all you want. Come on. 18 years ago, I moved, uh, my wife and I, we were engaged at the time, moved to the Woodlands, Texas. We didn't know Jesus. We didn't know church. Uh, we didn't know anything about this. Um, and uh, we didn't know why we were moving, uh, but praise God, he knew why it was for us to know him. We thought we were moving to open a restaurant and he moved us here so that we could know him. And so praise God for that. But as we got to know him and we got to start following him and uh, we were becoming more and more uh, uh, like a follower of Jesus and apprenticing underneath him and becoming more like him, I saw people in a whole different way. Like I've actually saw like someone outside of myself right? I'm 24 years old when I move here and I'm like, man, there's other people in this world. It's not just about me. (laughs) And I see people that are suffering and they're living in poverty. I mean, not in the woodlands, but I mean like, (laughs) I mean, spiritual poverty. Yes. But I am seeing people struggle and suffer and they're losing. And yet these people that have faith in Jesus, they're still proclaiming his name as if they have hope. And I'm just blown away by this. My eyes are being opened to this. I'm like, man, these people are incredible. I want to be like them. And so over time, I begin to get a little more confident in who I am in my walk with Jesus. And I'm like, I'm gonna go home and have a spiritual conversation with my folks at home, some friends and family. And I'm gonna tell them about Jesus because at this point in time, no one in my family was a follower of Jesus besides me and my wife. And so I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna share the love of Jesus with them. And so I go home and I've, I have, I'm having a conversation with a man that's pretty important in my life at the time and done some incredible things for me. And, and uh, I'm talking with him and I'm telling him like, Dude, Jesus has changed my life. He's so good. Like I, I can like I'll tell like let me tell you all like Jesus can make your life so much better. And like, like I didn't like, okay, young believer, I didn't know what I was trying to articulate. Like I knew what I wanted to say, but what was coming out of my mouth wasn't like, you know, completely biblical sometimes. Or I'm like, but Jesus is good and he's gonna make your life better. And he says, dude, I don't want your Jesus. And he starts getting frustrated with me. He's like, I don't want your Jesus. And quite frankly, if you keep talking about him, I don't want you. And you can leave. You and your Jesus can get out of here. And there was a few expletives that came with that as well. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? Like, and he's like, look, look around right now, Josh. I make $500,000 a year. The house that you're sitting in right now overlooks the lake. I've got boats. I've got cars. I've got a wife. I've got three kids. Like, How can your Jesus make my life any better? I don't know. I was stuck. I I I don't know. I began to doubt. And I began to question, well, maybe he's right. Because how can God make your life any better when this man is prospering and then succeeding in the way that he is? I began to ask questions like, is it worth it? Is it worth me to ask someone to give up everything they have to potentially lose it all in order to follow Jesus? Is it worth it? Yes. When his life looks so good for all intents and purposes, it looks amazing. Is it worth me even asking that? Or I ask, God, if you are good, if your son Jesus is good, does he actually intervene on the day-to-day situations? Or is Jesus only good when you die? Like, so I can get to heaven. But do you actually intervene on the day-to-day Do I really believe what I'm reading and what is being told to me about God? God, how could you allow these people that are suffering, people that are losing everything and they're proclaiming your name, how can you allow them to go like that? And yet here's a man that curses you and curses against you and says he wants nothing to do with you and yet he is flourishing and prospering in all that he does. And like verse 12 says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Now, maybe that doesn't get you. Maybe that's not, like, that doesn't uh, bother you too much when you see people prospering and flourishing that don't know God. You're kind of like, look, I'm just living my life. I'm just living my life for Jesus and I'm going. But on the, on the flip side, for some of you, some of the greatest doubt that has come in your life has come at the hands of believers, right? They know God, they know Jesus, they know the will that he has in their life and somehow they have hurt you and now your doubt has sprung up like none other. We tend to call this church hurt, don't we? And you've been hurt by a friend, a family member, a pastor, a leader, and somewhere along the way your trust was broken by their actions, and yet you see their lives flourishing, they're prospering, whether in life or in ministry. And you ask yourself, why? Why would God allow this? Is God even in all of this mess? Like, God, do you even care about what's going on in my life? Do you see what is happening? Are you with me? And you ask yourself, I don't know. Because the reality is, is this. Christians can be some of the messiest and most hurtful people with no regard for others. Why? Because we're just as selfish as everyone else. Right? We don't run and pursue God's holiness, yet we run and pursue our own interests and our own success. We don't want God's will in our lives. We want our own desires. And so we hurt people. And just like everyone else, we tend to think about ourselves. And so when you're hurt by those that you trust... The injustice that you experience, especially in the church, is just that much more personal, isn't it? And I tend to believe that the more personal the experience of injustice is, the more difficult it is to work and overcome those doubts. And so we begin to say things like Asaph says in verse 13, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph is saying, and you're saying, like in your hurt, you're saying, God, I've done my part. God, I've done what you have said. I've kept my side of the bargain, but God, where have you been? Do you even care? Is there any purpose in this life in following you? So I wonder what makes you ask that question today. What makes you ask that question? Is it worth following him? Like, God, are you good to me? Like, maybe it is a relationship, maybe it's the person you're sitting next to this morning. And you're like, God, there is this wall between us. There is something between us and I don't know what it is and, or I do know what it is and it is hurtful and it is hard and I don't know how to work through this. There's this static wall that we can't even communicate to one another and God, are you even in this? Do you care about what's going on between me and this person? Because I love them, but I don't know if you love me. Or maybe you've been stricken with disease. You've been diagnosed with something and you're wondering, okay, God, like, I thought you said you would protect me. Like, why aren't you protecting me? Like, why am I so sick? Why do I have to deal with this? I've been working to follow you. So what is that for you this morning? Why are you doubting? What makes you ask that question? And so we've seen what we doubt, right? Is God good for me? We've seen why we doubt because our experiences and what the word of God says contradicts one another. And so how do we actually deal with our doubt? How do we overcome our doubt? Because remember, God always welcomes the doubter. He welcomes the skeptic. But like I said earlier, he's not going to leave you there. He wants to pursue you in faith and you pursue him in faith. And so how do we overcome that? Look what Asaph says in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, when I thought how to understand why the wicked were prospering, it seemed like a worrisome task. I was exhausted until... Look at this. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Do you see what he said there? Asaph wasn't able to understand until he went into the sanctuary in the presence of God or what we like to say at restoration is what? The secret place. place. Come on, 945. The secret place. He couldn't understand it until he got into the secret place with God. That's it. That's how he was able to come to conclusions of this is what's going to happen. I wish I could give you this well-thought-out plan. Like, here's steps A, B, and C, and here's how you're gonna work through your doubts, and at the end of it, you're gonna overcome it all. But it's not because of your own brilliance that you work through your doubts. It's not because you pull up your bootstraps and you just get on with it. The ability for you to get through your doubts, to work through your doubts, to overcome your doubts is in a person. That's Jesus. Yes. That's how you overcome your doubts. Yes. Asaph is telling us what, I, what he needed was God. He needed to interact with God. He said, look, God, all my thinking, all my dwelling, all my agonizing, all it's done, it's done nothing for my doubt because the only way for me to get out of my own way, the only way for me to deal with it was to be in your presence, to be in the sanctuary with you. God, what I needed the most was to interact with you. I needed to cast all my doubts on you. I needed to cast all my frustrations on you, all my anger. I needed to choose redemption. God, and I needed you to restore my soul. And the way that God restored Asaph was by the ordinary, everyday practice of being with Jesus. Well, for him being with God. For us being with Jesus. And so how do we do that? Because he didn't need new truth, right? Asaph didn't need new thinking. He didn't need some like new theological thought. What he needed was to get back into the word of God and listen to what God said. He needs to tell him, God, tell me who you are. Tell me again who you are. Tell me again why you love me. Tell me again what you want for my life. God, tell me again. That's what he needed. And so Asaph, he walked into the sanctuary defeated, depressed, and doubting. And he walks out with a newfound faith. And while Asaph was in the presence, he realizes and he's reminded that there's actually an end to the wicked. It dawns on him. He remembers, okay, God, yeah, you did tell me. Their time is coming That the wicked do have a shelf life. Those that don't believe and proclaim your name, there is a shelf life to that. That all their winning, all their successes, all their joy is just temporary. In the end, it's all going to be taken away from them. Those that only live for their own lives, their own successes, their own power, their own influence, all that is going to be taken away and Asaph discerns that. He finally comes to realize that once he got into the secret place. Look what he says in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Their time is coming. Now, Asaph isn't reveling in this. Okay, let's make that, let's be very clear about that, right? He's not rejoicing in the fact that the wicked are gonna fall like sometimes we do, right? Like when we see people that have hurt us, Or we see the wicked when they fall and we're like, yeah, he had that coming. I don't know why it's a he, but like it's like it must be. Like I'm, it's me. He had that coming. You know, follow up to that story I shared with you earlier. Uh, That man that basically cursed Jesus and me out of his house. Um, When I share this with you, I don't revel in this, but it, it breaks my heart. Because uh, um, I care about this man. Uh, But if you fast forward 17 years to today, uh, he's not married. He doesn't uh, have a relationship with his kids. Um, His alcoholism got so bad that when he doesn't drink, he has seizures. He's been unemployed for five years and he lives out of a Motel 6. And God's wrath finally came and caught up to him. And oftentimes, I think we we imagine God's wrath as this like fire and brimstone, lightning and fire raining from the sky and boom, lives are destroyed. But what does it say in Romans 1 about God's wrath? He gives them into it. You want these desires? You want these lusts? You want these thoughts? You can have them, but you're going to have the consequences that come with it as well. And so what Asaph is saying is that God's glory will come and all of this is just temporary, okay? The immediate is gonna look like a dream compared to the future. Now, not only do we discern and does Asaph discern that in this psalm that as he gets into the presence of God, not only does God judge the sin of others, but guess what he also judges? Your sin. Well, come on. Wait a minute, I was super excited about seeing the wicked sin just judge and be like, okay, God, throw down, your, throw down your fire and rain and just, but wait a minute, don't judge my sin. Like, I didn't know we were going to do that in the secret place. I'm going to say this, and this may hurt, but I think it's good for us to do some reflection every now and then. If your interactions with God only prompt you to think about the sin of others, then you're not actually meeting with God. Okay, if you go into the secret place and while you're in the secret place and you're interacting with God and the only thing you think about and the only thing you see is the sin of others, then you're not actually meeting with God. You're by yourself in a dark closet. Okay? That's the reality because here's the deal. When you are in the presence of God, you can't help but see your own sinfulness. Am I right? And here's what the Psalm has to say about that. He's writing these words. and He's not just saying that God judges the sin of the wicked, but he judges sin generally, even in him. Because again, when you get around God, you can't help but see your own sin. Look what Asaph says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, Asaph says, when I was doubting and when I wasn't following you, Lord, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So what he's saying is, listen to this. Asaph is saying is that at the bottom of his issues, at the bottom of his doubting, at the bottom of his lamenting, about the bottom of all his doubts, the foundation of it all was his own sin. Yes. He said, I was like a beast towards you. I was brutish. I was ignorant. And when he used this word beast, it's, what he's saying is that rather than responding to his circumstances, like he was created to be with a human being, with intellect and reason and the ability to actually restrain from his desires. He acted like a beast and acted on all of his desires. Because what do we know about beasts? What do we know about lions? When they see food, they eat. And they don't know how to stop eating until they're basically just on the ground, right? They're just, I mean, have you, who's been on a safari? Okay, just me. All right, a few people over here. Good. So if you go and you see lines that have been done, they're just finished eating. You can literally drive your like open air vehicle right up next to them. And there you could reach out and touch them, but they don't bother you because they can't move from how much they've eaten. They couldn't restrain themselves from their desires. And so what Asaph is saying is that he acted like a beast towards God. He wasn't harnessing the power and the restraint that God had given him. Just like God, the creator, we were created in his image. God was able to create for six days. And after six days, he stopped because why? He said it was perfect. He didn't create anymore. He restrained from creating anymore. And he rested on that seventh day. And so Asaph is saying, look, I didn't restrain like you created me to be. I just wanted my own sinful desires, my own sinful way, my own sinful thoughts to be met. And we know this to be true because what does Asaph say in verse three? Did you catch it? What does he say in verse 3? The root of all of this was my envy. Yes. Can we pull up verse 3 again? There it is. The root of all of this was my envy. And Asaph is saying that the lives of those that were wicked, the lives of those that were prospering, the lives of those that were filled with joy, it wasn't unbearable to him. He just wanted what they had. He was envious of them. It was his envy that gave weight to, to his doubt. It was his own sinful desire, something that God wasn't giving him. And so instead of recognizing his own sin, his own desires, and accusing himself and repenting and stopping and thinking in a new way about his actions, instead he accuses God of his doubt and the reason for almost walking away. And the truth is, is that there's some of you in this room today that have given into your doubt. There's some of you today that have given into your doubt and given into the lie that God is not giving you what you think you deserve. You've given into that. And you say, you know what? God's not good for me. He doesn't care for me. And at the foundation of your doubts, the foundation of your frustrations is the sin of envy for what others have, or the sin of pride, or the sin of slothfulness, but at the foundation of it is sin. And as we know from Romans 1, God's wrath is just to give you into your own sin. You want that? Cool, have it. Here's the consequences that come with it. I will guide you if you listen to me. I will tell you otherwise because the ways of man will lead you to death. But if you follow me, you will prosper. I will be like a lamp unto your feet. But if you want these things and you go after these things, you can have them. And so he's going to allow you to walk in your desires and your thoughts. And if that's you this morning, if you feel that this morning and you're questioning and you're doubting for some reason, like just take a deep breath, recognize like you can go back into the presence of Jesus. Like it's not too late. You're not broken. You're not unfixable. You're never out of the redemptive reach of Jesus. Go back to his presence and allow him to to come to you. And so, in the secret place, not only do we recognize that God judges sin, he judges all sin, including ours. But here's our hope. Okay, you ready for the hope? As you sit in the presence of Jesus, here's the cool part. You will be reminded that that he has been and always will be with you. He's never left you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, as a need to be able to bridge that gap between you and God because of your sin... If you've placed your faith in Jesus, he's got you. God's got you, and he's always been with you. Look what Asaph says. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards, you will receive me to glory. He realizes that even though at the foundation of it all was his own sin, his own doubt about the wicked, he realizes that, one, God never left him. God never left him. He was there the entire time. And if you pay attention to those verses, who's doing all the work in that relationship? Who's doing all the work? Again, here's Asaph, a man, a lead worshiper in the tabernacle. He's doubting, he's wanting to walk away, and yet who's doing all the work? God is. He says, God, you held, God, you guided, God, you promised. God, you held my hand when I wanted to let go. God, you guided me with your counsel even when I was rejecting it. God, you promised to bring me into glory even though I was deciding on whether or not I wanted to walk away. And when he says, God, you held my right hand, what he's realizing is there's no pain, there's no doubt, there's no lack of wealth, there's no suffering that will ever make God let go of your hand. Nothing will change that. He's got you. There's no amount of doubt or complaining or lamenting in the presence of Jesus that will ever have him say, that's too much, bro. He'll never let you go. He's got you. He's continually with you. Even if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you're doubting today, like you're doubting whether or not he cares or if he's even real, he's never gonna let you go. For me, this has been more real in the last few weeks than it has been in a long time, the amount of doubt that I've been struggling with. There's a verse... That's been incredibly impactful to my family um, over the last few years as we've been walking in the discipline of Sabbath and rest. And what does that look like for us to worship Jesus uh, in the midst of busyness? And uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 um, says, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I've been doubting this. Like, God, do you really? Like, is this real? Like, do you actually want my burdens? Because, for a myriad of reasons, um, you know, this building that's happening. You know, trying to build 40,000 square feet and all the questions and things that come up on a daily basis on what's happening. We're managing the finances with that building and understanding we got all this cash that's going this way, but yet we still have day-to-day operations over here and we still have a nest egg and how are we managing all this? And God, you are faithful. I trust that you're gonna provide along the way because I'm not smart enough to do this. I wasn't smart enough to get us into this. And so God, this is you. You did this and this is yours. And so, but I tr- like, I'm doubting whether or not he actually wants those. And then at home, we haven't had a kitchen since March because of a flood in our kitchen. And we're fighting the insurance company right now. And so we've been without a sink and a dishwasher. And I know this is third world problems, but I've been washing dishes in my bathtub for over a month. Or I'm sorry, it's over th- four months since March 11th. And now it's looking like we're going to go to litigation with this insurance company. And I'm wondering, God, do you, like, have everything am I done, has this been in vain? And then I got kids at home and it's summertime and there's no structure and there's four kids and they're driving me crazy and the house is always a mess. And God, where are you? Do you even matter? Like, am I doing any, like, do you want my burden? Because if I just give you my burden, sometimes I feel like I'm just abdicating my responsibility to you. And so two Mondays ago, I came in here to worship because that's what we do as a staff. We worship and we pray for two hours on Monday morning because we're so busy throughout the week that that's what we know we have to give to it. Like we have to worship and pray because of everything that we have going on. And I come and I confess to Greg and to Sam, our worship pastor, and say, God, guys, I'm doubting these verses that have been so impactful for me because I don't believe that God wants my burdens. And how good is it to be able to walk into the, with someone that says, you can share those with me. And I don't judge you. And so what God, what I needed the most from God was to just come and be in the sanctuary with him. And as I was writing down my thoughts and my frustrations, God very clearly said, Josh, how prideful do you have to believe to be that thing that I can't handle what you have? And so at the bottom of my doubts was my own sin of pride that I didn't believe that God could handle it because I just got to pull up my bootstraps and get on with it. What I realized in that moment was I can trust God. I know that he's with me. I know that his goodness and mercy shall follow me all the rest of my days and he'll never let go of my hand. And the reason I can trust that he'll never let go of my hand is because of what it cost him. Because of what it cost him. God will never let go of your hand because of what it cost him, because he let go of Jesus' hand on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and he's hanging there for the sins of for our sins, and God lets go of his hand and Jesus says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus realizes for the first time that he's actually separated from God. God has turned his face from him because he can't handle the look of the amount of sin that has come upon his son. He can't even relate to that sin because he is so good and Jesus bore that sin. And so we can trust and know that God will never let go of our hand because he let go of Jesus' on the cross. But again, What did it take for Asaph to realize that? What did it take for me to realize that? He was getting into the presence of God and going to the secret place. And again, I don't have a formula for that. I don't know what it looks like for each of you to encounter God and what it looks like in that encounter. But I know this, that when you get into the secret place and you spend time with him and you begin to confess to him and you bring your doubts to him and your questions to him, I know that you will come out of that beginning to heal. Because look what Asaph says in verse 25. He says, Whom do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And so when you see the wicked flourish, or when you've seen those that have hurt you prosper, but you can still proclaim that there's nothing on earth that is more valuable than being in a relationship with Jesus, then know this, you are beginning to heal from your doubts there is nothing more valuable in this life, there is nothing that can worry us so much there is nothing that can cause so much doubt in our life that is more valuable than being in a relationship with Jesus and he says my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever my cup overflows he says forever for behold those who are far from me shall perish and be put to end to everyone who is faithful to you but for me This is Asaph. Remember what he said in verse one? God, you're good, but I almost failed. Look what he says at the end after spending time with God in the secret place. But for me, God, it is good to be near you. I made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is what faith looks like, right? This is what faith looks like in the midst of doubt. And I love what Tim Keller had to say about doubt. He said that doubts are like the antibodies to your faith. That your doubts can actually grow you stronger as you wrestle with them. And so hopefully that's where you find yourself. That even in the midst of your doubts and your struggles and your questioning and you're wondering if God is good or if he cares about you, that you find yourself going to the secret place, going to the sanctuary of God and wrestling with them. Because again, the answer to your doubts isn't your own intellect, it's not your own brilliance it's not your strength or your effort the answer to your doubts is a person it's Jesus it's Jesus amen and so this morning I just want to give you an opportunity to pray like so often we hear a sermon we're like okay done over get my kids get the lunch what's next I got to mow the lawn I got to do this it's Sunday chore day let's go But man, we got to wrestle with this. That's what Asaph did. You're here. You're here right now. You've set aside this time to be with God. And so let's just be with him. And so I want to open up the front to those that are doubting. I want you to be able to come to the altar and just get on your hands and knees and just say, God, I need you right now. And ask for prayer. Prayer. And we're going to have prayer partners up here and their Ephesians 2.10 calling is to walk with you, to, be the, to bridge that gap, to be a priest for you, to be the bridge between you and God and pray for you on your behalf. That's their calling. They love to do that. And so if you don't even know what you want to pray about or how to pray, but you just know the doubt that's in your mind, like share it with them and let them pray on your behalf because that's what they're called to do. That's what God's asked them to do. And so I just want to sit for a few moments And so I just want you again to just, if you need to come forward, please, if you're in the lobby, feel free, come forward, kneel at the altar, pray, find a prayer partner, but let's just sit and allow this moment and not rush out of it. God, where am I doubting? Why am I doubting? And how can you help me? Let's do that now. here today and you have no idea where you stand with God you have no idea where you stand in your faith and you're just doubting whether or not he's real Um, would you bring just even that tiny amount of faith that you have to a big and glorious God today would you confess that to him or maybe you've been walking with God and you've been hurt or you're seeing things are going on in your lives that are contradicting what God's word has to say and you don't know how to get through this, this next moment, you don't know what it looks like from day to day would you confess that to God this morning you can do that in your chair or up here with others because I love what Greg has to say, it's Not how big your faith is, but how big your God is. Because again, you can bring just a tiny amount of faith to a big and glorious God, and he can transform you and change you.